This is Boss Talk, and I'm Mike Elk, Senior Labor Reporter at Payday Report. Boss Talk is a project of Payday Report, a new labor publication based out of Louisville, Kentucky, aimed at covering the growing labor movement in the South. Each week, my co-host and I, University of Wyoming labor law professor Mike Duff, will talk about ways in which workers were able to fix their boss through organizing and labor law tactics. This is Mike Elk coming to you this week from Charleston, South Carolina, from the hall of the International Longshoremen Association, Local 1442. It's a historic uh, African-American dock workers union here in Charleston that's uh, helped maintain a lot of power here in the local community. Today our subject uh, deals with what cases will be prosecuted under Trump. Obviously, companies break labor law all the time, and there's civil servants in all of these agencies that want to see companies prosecuted, as well as unions and other groups that want to see them prosecuted. The question today looks at a case involving Google. Right now, the Department of Labor is suing in federal court in San Francisco to get access to Google's information on on sexual harassment, on how much they pay women, on a wide range of gender issues. This review came about as part of a review of whether or not workers employed by Google on federal contracts were being treated according to labor law. My co-host and I, Mike Duff, will be discussing this today. Mike, how likely do you think it will be that Trump will keep this case up? I doubt that he will keep investigating this case or that the case will be litigated in court. I think it's important to understand why we're here. And we're here because contractors, as you mentioned at the outset, are required to comply with certain rules, provisions under labor law. And contractors are more vulnerable than the average employer out there in the uh, marketplace because if the federal government believes that a contractor is not complying with federal law, it obviously has the authority to pull its contract. So I imagine this investigation, although I'm not clear on its complete history, but this undoubtedly uh, began during the Obama administration and uh, the investigation is continuing. And as I understand the procedural posture of the case, Google has uh, refused to provide certain information in the Department of Labor litigating on behalf of the Office of Federal Contract Compliance is insisting upon uh, the information. This, of course, is preliminary to any kind of a court case on the merits. So in other words, are they discriminating against workers based on gender? It's interesting because a study showed that only 19% of Google's technology jobs are held by women. And that of Google's overall jobs, only one third of them are held by women. So it's, it's, the numbers show this. Well, I suspect that's why they don't want to provide the information, because statistically, it's going to be pretty uh, damning. But I think it's important that everybody understand the difference between an investigation and an actual court case. And I also think it's important that people remember that employment agencies, which is where most workers, uh, you or I or anybody else who's fired, discriminated against, and so forth, we're going to file a charge at an administrative agency. And the administrative agency has a tremendous amount of discretion whether to proceed with an investigation, whether to proceed uh, with a court case. And the decisions of administrative agencies not to prosecute are virtually unreviewable under law. There's uh, an old case called uh, Heckler v. Cheney, federal uh, administrative law case that essentially says that courts will not review an agency's decision not to enforce a case unless there's literally something in the statute that says, look, if you make a series of factual findings, you must 
proceed to court, then agencies aren't required to, and, and almost no federal statutes will say something like that. So you think it's likely, though, that the case will be dropped? That you know, this was a continuation of the Obama administration's fact-finding mission. You know, we were talking um, last week uh, about how OSHA hasn't been issuing press releases. Uh, this week, they finally issued a uh, press release about an enforcement action against a company called Atlantic Sewers Company out of Boston, where two workers were killed in a trench. They fined them 1.5 million. This was an investigation that began in October and was conducted primarily under the Obama administration. Do you think cases like this will keep moving forward? What kind of cases are we expected to see? I think we have to start with the premise that we have folks at the upper echelons of these agencies who are on the record as fundamentally disagreeing with the mission of the agency. So my guess is the only kinds of cases that are likely to be pursued are those that are so egregious that you could expect some kind of a public backlash if there wasn't pursuit of the case on some level. This leads to another issue with respect to what happens when violations are found, because not only do agencies have the authority to pick and choose what cases they're going to pursue, they also have the ability to resolve and settle cases for less than the general public might imagine they could settle a case. So if the agency feels like a case has weaknesses, it can settle, uh, settle the case for less than the total remedies that might be available under the statute, and they do this all the time. You were saying that uh, sometimes the NLRB will give a 20% discount on settlements for people to settle. That's right. One of the uh, policies that used to frankly drive me crazy was that whenever we had a discharge case and there was back pay owing, unless the employer involved was a, a real recidivist employer, somebody who had violated the uh, NLRB repeatedly, it was the agency's starting position that we would offer a 20% discount on back pay. And it just used to drive me crazy. That's not a way to negotiate. Now, if in the course of negotiating over settlement of the case, it turned out that maybe your case has some weaknesses and you want to discount the value of the case, fine. We can talk about reductions in uh, available back pay and remedies and so forth. But to enter into the negotiation, with the perspective that you're going to offer unilaterally a 20% discount is not really a negotiation. And, and so, yeah, I, there are policies like that uh, throughout the government. So what winds up happening in a lot of these situations, you were saying, as we talked the other day, is that often the federal agencies only want to pursue cases that they think can win. If something seems a little complicated, they don't want to pursue it. Uh, and so is that what we're likely to see under Trump, is just the pursuit of those kind of cases? Yeah, and I would say that that was true for me under both uh, Democratic and Republican administrations. And I think we'll see an aggravated version of that now. I think that uh, you're only going to see pursuit of the most obvious violations and anything that is borderline is likely uh, not to be pursued, which in a way is a real shame because often the way the law grows is when theories for the expansion of the law are pursued, are pushed. If you take a cramped view of uh, labor statutes like any other kind of law, then you're likely to get um, not a lot of growth in the law and not a lot of aggressiveness on the part of uh, labor prosecutors. Now, turning to something that's really interesting, we've been talking a lot about preemption. And, you know, preemption laws essentially allow states to override municipalities that want to pass their own minimum wage. The Fight for 15 has led cities across America to increase their minimum wage to 15 an hour or to other living wage standards that are slightly lower than that. One town, Miami Beach, Florida, 
uh, last year tried to increase their minimum wage to 13 bucks an hour. However, the state of Florida a few years ago passed a law preempting this. Now, this case has become a big issue in Florida because the mayor of Miami Beach, Philip Levine, wants to run governor of Florida. He's taken out ads against the state GOP for passing this kind of law, and now he's suing. He lost at the first level of state court, but he's expected to win uh, at the state Supreme Court. Mike, can you explain why this is? The last conversation we had about these uh, preemption laws, I pointed out that in a number of instances, they're really not preemption laws. They're, uh, They're not laws where there is a state wage law and a local wage law that are in actual conflict, which is is really uh, the nature of, of preemption. This is a little bit different. This is a situation in which there indeed is a state law that says that the city is not allowed to uh, raise the minimum wage in the, uh, in the fashion that it did. However, there was a state constitutional, um, I guess it was a um, kind of an initiative, and the, uh, and the rule that was ultimately passed, the constitutional amendment, said it untethered the state minimum wage from the federal minimum wage. And then it said in the same provision, oh, yeah, by the way, we're not suggesting by doing that, that municipalities and cities don't have the authority to enact even higher minimum wage. So to me, this is a not a complicated question. I think the judge got it wrong. I think that the uh, there is a constitutional provision that in the hierarchy of laws supersedes whatever the state statutory law was. If the Constitution says that a city or a municipality can do something, then it can't. So I don't even think this is is actual uh, preemption. So it's likely to be overturned, but what I find more interesting is that Democratic politicians see passing uh, minimum wage laws at the local level as a step to state office. It's emblematic of what's been happening at the federal level. And what I mean by that is There's this, what has been a tacit understanding, but now is kind of an explicit understanding that there's not going to be uh, progressive initiatives with respect to wages, with respect to workers' rights that are going to be coming from the national government. It's just not going to be happening. And so you're getting increased interest on the part of municipalities in sort of filling that void. If the federal government's not going to protect workers' rights, then uh, but then maybe we're going to have to. And increasing attempts, increasing assertiveness in uh, trying to do this at the local level. Now, when we, when we think about the structure of American government, we historically talked about states being kind of the laboratories of democracy and the innovators and the, the uh, protectors of local citizens' rights and so forth. So I think the fact that this is going on at the uh, local level, at the city level, suggests that maybe the kind of capture that some of us have come to expect at the federal level has uh, made its way to the state level. And so the initiatives almost have to arise experimentally at the uh, level of uh, municipalities. And I think you're going to see more and more of this. Look, if you frustrate the populace at the uh, national and state government level, those democratic impulses will still emerge. And I think it's happening at the level of cities. Speaking of new things emerging, as we wrap up this week, Mike, is there anything you saw interesting in labor law this week happening uh, that you think particularly of note? I have been uh, very focused on uh, workplace uh, injury laws and so forth, but there was uh, an initiative that I took note of. I don't think it's a new initiative, but the uh, the idea that gig workers could be protected by a system of portable benefits, and I've blogged a little bit about it. And 
In a nutshell, I suppose the general thinking is it's better than nothing, right? I mean, if what, what, workers, what do we mean by portable benefits? So the idea is they're not connected to a particular employer. If I'm in the gig economy, I can have uh, workers' comp benefits that presumably would be administered at the state level, maybe at the federal level. And I would have benefits even though I was not an employee. And this is, I'll talk about this in a minute. This is what I have a problem with. But uh, I could carry those benefits with me, whether I was an employee or an independent contractor. Now, the issue that I have with that is I think it concedes ground. I think that it sort of buys into the argument that so-called gig employers make that, you know, what we do is so fundamentally different that you can't find that we have employees. Well, yes, we can. There is an employee test that is uh, basically centers on how much control the employing entity has over the putative employee. And we have a test that has worked more or less continuously since the beginning of the 20th century. The problem is if the test is employed and we keep coming up with the answer that, yep, this person is your employee. There are certain companies that don't like that answer. They prefer not to have employees because they prefer not to pay into the full employee benefits regime. The problem I have with the notion of portable benefits is it concedes to those employers that the individuals in the economy are not employees. And boy, oh boy, be careful that you don't wind up with some kind of benefit light regime in which employees are getting something less than ordinary employee benefits, which, by the way, are not so great in their own right. You had an issue with the bill that Mark Warner introduced on this, right? Yeah, I don't know that uh, Senator Warner's actually proposed the bill. I've been reading on his website some of the proposals. I know there's a bill in Washington state at the state level. And I will say that I also think that they're going to have a real uh, problem with ERISA preemption for complicated reason. But generally, States can't regulate employee benefits with some narrow exclusions, and I think there's a pretty good argument that these kinds of portable benefit packages would fall outside of the exclusions. So this is really kind of the role, you know, in terms of providing gig economies, it's something that organized labor really has to step up and do. I mean, I'm sitting here in a Longshoreman Hall. Uh, You know, this is a kind of hall where people get hired uh, every day to do work, and their benefits change no matter who they're, you know, loading ships for. Uh, Is this really a chance that labor could step in and provide these kind of benefits? Well, Mike, if you know anything about my academic work, you may know that I take the position that law follows organizing. It's not the reverse. Whatever we have in terms of labor and employment law is either a function of organized labor creating the rights or organized labor underwriting the rights. And conversely, I don't care what kind of an employment law regime or benefits regime you have Without an aggressive labor movement, you have a benefits regime that's likely to be eroded by uh, more powerful and sophisticated actors. Well, thanks for, uh, it's been great having you on this week, Mike. Um, Look forward to next week. Thanks very much, Mike. Take care. Uh, Boss Talk is a work in progress, much like the rest of the labor movement. And we, like the rest of the labor movement, depend on our members, our readers, uh, those who listen to us give us the energy to keep building and and we're here to be a publication for you as readers we want to know what you think and we want to write stories about workers funded by workers from the perspective of workers and it's up to folks like you so write in donate let us know what you think about this and we'll keep listening to you and we'll keep putting out a show with some of the most interesting perspectives on labor law this week